This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit ChristendomRestored.com to read other articles. Missions in the Big Cities by Bojidar Marinov, December 11, 2012 A friend of mine from Brazil, who's working to start a reformed church in a large city, asked me a few weeks ago, how do you do urban missions from a theonomic perspective? It's a very important question. In fact, I can safely predict that this will be the most important question for the next generation of missionaries, and it's a huge question too, and it'll require much more than one or two articles to be answered, but I will try to lay the foundation for the answer at least. There are several reasons I believe it's a very important question, if not the most important practical question about missions in our generation. First, because biblically, we should expect a movement from rural to urban from the countryside to the cities, and we should expect the Christendom to be centered in the cities and be built from the cities to the countryside. The Bible starts with the garden and ends with the city. While I know that the meaning of the city is largely symbolic, the change is of the deepest significance. Those who expect to return to the idyllic garden-style life in the coming age may be disappointed. Its significance extends throughout history as well. The command to mankind to multiply and take dominion over the earth will necessarily lead to less land available to the individual families and therefore go to the increasing importance of other non-agricultural resources, skills, innovations, and production processes. Those innovation processes should, in their turn, increase the output from the land which will make it possible to feed the larger populations in the cities. Indeed, Cain's first act after he got banished from God's presence to settle and build a city, Genesis 4, verse 16-17, was not strange or unusual. Yes, it was an act of rebellion against God, but only in the fact that Cain wanted to build his own city, not God's city. In the Old Testament, the saints were expecting the city built by God, Hebrews 11, verse 16. Second, historically, God has increasingly worked for the advancement of his kingdom through cities. True enough, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, and all of Israel until the time of entering the promised land under Joshua were predominantly agricultural, but that was because they were still pilgrims. They hadn't found the promised land yet. When the Israelites moved to the promised land, their life was organized around cities. The cities were the centers of their military defense. Living in the cities that they didn't build was part of the promise, Deuteronomy 6 verse 10. And even before they entered the land, The cities were declared to be the center of their judicial authority, the city elders. See Deuteronomy chapters 21 through 25. The Ark of the Covenant was the last inhabitant of the land to not settle behind the protective walls of a city. But God had planned and promised that there would eventually be a city of his name, where his name would dwell. 1 Kings 8 verse 16, Deuteronomy 12 verse 5 and 11. As Pastor Joe Moorcraft pointed out in a recent sermon, The wisdom described in Proverbs 8 speaks to a city man in an urban setting. So while the land was the basis of their economy and was divided between the tribes, God made the cities be the foundation of the society of Israel. This was later acknowledged by Jesus when he based his evangelism strategy on the cities, Luke 10 verse 10. And he declared curses on cities as communities, Luke 10 verse 13, Matt 23, Luke 13, pointing to their covenantal significance. We can say both the law and the gospel were centered around cities, and the cities were and are important in the administration of both. Third, from an economic standpoint, it is the cities that make it possible to pull together economic resources and human creativity at the lowest cost, due to low transportation costs and the economies of scale, and thus produce more goods. The economic aspect of society is often ignored by pietistic Christians, and especially by missionaries, but it shouldn't be. 
The Bible states many times the promise that the covenant keepers will increase in numbers. The dominion mandate in Genesis 1, verse 26 through 27, has never been canceled, and it continues to be the foundation for historical blessings and cursings even after the fall. See Deuteronomy 28, also Genesis 12, verse 2 through 3. But if covenantal obedience leads to the blessings of demographic increase, then by default it must lead to economic blessings as well. Otherwise, increased population without increased economic output will only produce more misery and curse, as is happening with covenant breakers around the world today. Indeed, because cities tend to attract talent, we should expect to see a culture that values talent and innovation undergo an increased rate of urbanization compared to other cultures. For example, after the Reformation in Europe, the Reformed community saw a significantly greater movement of populations to the cities, while before the Reformation, northern Italy and north-central France had the highest rate of urbanization in Europe. After the 1500s, these regions were surpassed quickly by the Netherlands, England, Switzerland, and the Calvinist principalities in central Germany. By the early 1800s, the total urban population of the Netherlands was about 1.5 million, and the most part of that increase came from immigration to the cities from inside and outside of the Netherlands. And by 1815, London was the largest city in the world with 1.5 million souls from 500,000 just 100 years earlier. If the cities are a natural nexus for resources and human labor and ingenuity, then they will tend to attract more people. The trend cannot be stopped, for more people would want to participate in the growth, sometimes real, sometimes perceived, of the city instead of settling for life in the countryside, which was often perceived as stagnant and unrewarding. Indeed, for all the proclaimed evils of the Industrial Revolution in England, the average wage earned by a factory worker was between six and ten times higher than the wage of a farmhand. Children employed in the factories made better money than experienced agricultural workers. That naturally tended to attract many people to the cities, and the trend continues today. From any perspective, theological, cultural, economic, we should expect to see the cities become the dominant culture in every society, and therefore expect to see an increased need for Christian missions in the big cities, not only in traditionally non-Christian lands, but in Europe and the United States too. In fact, if anything, it can be argued that some of the big cities in the West are as much in need of solid Christian missions as are the rainforests of the Amazon or the interior of Africa or China. A missionary, therefore, must know how to build a mission in the urban context, and a successful mission at that. The main problem that a city forces on its inhabitants, and therefore on the missionary who is working in that context, is the complexity of social relationships compared to the rural countryside. Of course, in the countryside, where relatively fewer people live within the same geographic area within a day's walk, the social contacts remain limited. Given the fact that in the rural context, extended families tend to remain living in the same place, most of that social contact is within the extended family. At the most, social contacts remain within a restricted range of those who live in the geographical vicinity. This doesn't mean, of course, that different ethical rules apply to the city and to the country. The moral law remains the same, but the complex social interaction within the culture of the city makes the task before the missionary different than it would be in a more rural setting. To deal successfully with that challenge of complex social relationships, a missionary must initially focus on three important issues and resolve them in a biblical way. These issues are church, family, and work. The synagogue model. The prevailing model today used by missionaries to deal with the challenges in the big cities is the church planning model. I say church planning because that's how the model is known among missionaries and mission organizations. 
The church in this case means specifically the formal church gathering on Sunday morning for worship and preaching. Thus, this model is generally Sunday-centered, liturgy or worship-centered, institutional church-centered. The objective is having a church that is a church building, where there are services every Sunday and converts come to listen to sermons and participate in the worship. In fact, for most preachers and missionaries, this is a sign of a disciple, one who regularly attends church services on Sunday morning. Thus, by default, a church is centered on Sunday morning on the institutional sacramental aspect of the faith and on the ministry, which often means the specific church activities like preaching, church administration, and worship. Worship, of course, means anything from having a music band on the stage for the more contemporary churches to writing hymns and putting together the bulletin for the worship order for the liturgy-oriented ones. The meaning of the word elder is defined as a church administrator, or rather, as a member of the church board, one who makes decisions or participates in making decisions in the limited area of church business. In general, a successful mission is one which has a church building, regular services, and a group of regular attendees as an institutional core, which is defined by little more than a simple profession of faith and regular presence on Sunday morning. This is the vision of a mission most missionaries have, and therefore their whole work is geared toward that. Even when they start with some rather unconventional tactics, like Bible study groups or street evangelism, or even organizing English courses for locals, the final goal is to get the converts to attend the service on Sunday morning, and hopefully make a profession of faith and join the church. Joining the church means regular attendance of services and participation in the different programs which the missionary would organize as part of the new religious undertaking, that is, the church. Such programs are in general strictly religious in character and are specifically limited to church business like evangelism, prayer groups, children groups, or Christmas pageants. I call this model the Greek temple model. It is a model that views the Christian faith as a strictly personal faith, limited in scope to personal religious convictions, and it views the church, respectively, as a religious institution limited in its scope and function. At the foundation of that model is a belief that the church is an outlet for satisfying a specific personal need, the need for salvation, or rather, the need for religious experience. The church is thus one of the outlets in the society offering its specific product. When a person needs groceries, he goes to the grocery store. When he needs his car repaired, he goes to the car repair place. When he needs entertainment, he goes to the theater. In a similar manner, missions are set up to offer a solution to the religious need of personal salvation. Just like a Greek temple in the antiquity would be built for the purpose to offer to the population the opportunity to implore a god or goddess for specific personal needs or for specific collective needs of the polis. The mission that is taking that approach is generally focused on taking his own niche in the market of services without interfering with the other niches, groceries, car repair, entertainment, etc. And it certainly doesn't try to tell other niches how they should live and operate. Having a church building and a regular church service and worship, of course, is a good and commendable goal. But even in the best scenario, this model works only when a Christian culture is already in place Christianity is accepted as a norm everywhere, and the church service Sunday morning is just one of the aspects of the Christian culture. In other words, for the church planning model to work, we need a Christendom, a culture which is marked in every aspect by the centrality of the Christian faith, from personal lives to social conventions and economic and political rules. Even in the centuries of Christendom, though, when the whole population of the European cities was confessionally Christian, church buildings never could accommodate everyone. At best, Church buildings in any particular European city 
could house only between a quarter and a third of the city population. Such was the case before the Reformation, and such was the case during the Reformation and after it, including in places like Scotland and Switzerland, where the religious zeal of the population was quite high. Even in the small settlements in the North American colonies, where in the first decade settlers moved specifically for religious reasons, the regular church attendees were estimated to be not more than 10% of the whole population. A church centered around the Sunday morning liturgy and collective worship is not a culture-changing church. To the contrary, it is itself the product of a thoroughly Christianized culture. Therefore, church planning, as it is understood today by many missionaries and mission organizations, may bring in converts, but won't evangelize the culture. So then, what is the solution for a city whose culture is anything but Christian? And what should a missionary do in the large jungle of social relations, which threatens to engulf and destroy his fledgling mission? The solution is to challenge the culture of the city itself. Whether a missionary realizes it or not, or whether he is willing to acknowledge it or not, a Christian mission is always a challenge to the prevailing culture. For culture is religion externalized, as Henry Van Til taught. A challenge to religion of the city is a challenge to its culture, and unless a mission offers a comprehensive challenge to that culture, there can be no successful mission. This is much more obvious in a rural context, or in the context of backward tribes. Missionaries in the big cities, or in a predominantly urban civilization, seldom think of their work as a cultural enterprise. But it is one nevertheless, and therefore a mission must be organized so as to challenge the very culture of the city. And culture is not challenged by capturing Sunday morning. It is challenged by capturing Monday morning and every other day of the week. In order to challenge the culture of the big city, a missionary must envision pockets of the cultural resistance, many cultures within the larger conglomerate of pagan cultures. These many cultures must be comprehensive in their claims on the life of the believer, and they must provide answers to a wide array of cultural issues, even if some of those issues are not directly a concern at that specific moment. Do we have a biblical example of such many cultures in the larger context of a city? Yes, yes we do. The synagogues. It will be helpful to remember that in the Roman Empire, the Jews of the Diaspora seldom settled in rural settings. Synagogues were to be found in the large cities of the empire, and indeed, Paul was always looking for the synagogue when he entered the city. The Jews were everywhere. Of course, the largest single Jewish community was the one in Judea and Galilee, but estimates show that that community was only between one-third and one-fourth of the total Jewish population in the empire. Every city had a synagogue, and sometimes several synagogues. And a synagogue was started by families, not by a priest or a minister. Jews didn't have priests outside of Israel anyway. Ten families were the minimum number to start a synagogue, and they could invite a rabbi to reside in their community and be paid to teach them. The synagogue was not just a place of worship. It was a community center, and its purpose was not to dispense religious experience, but to assume the function of a total society for its members. Were they effective? Enormously. Between the end of the civil war won by Octavian Augustus in 30 BC and Nero's suicide in AD 68, which ended the Julio-Claudian dynasty, the population of the empire grew from 45 million to about 55 million, at the very low rate of about one-fifth of a percent annually. But the Jewish population grew at the astounding rate of almost 1% a year, five times faster than the general population, from 4 million to about 10 million. By AD 65, the Jews were so numerous that they were about 20% of the population of the empire. Never before and never after has the Jewish population comprised such a high portion of the world's population. 
This growth, within a century before the destruction of Jerusalem, was due not only to natural birth rates, conversion played a large role too. Proselytes are mentioned many times in the New Testament, and many Greeks and Romans came to worship in Jerusalem, acknowledging it to be the source of the one true religion. See, for example, John 12, verse 20. Given the fact that the Jews were not specifically oriented toward world evangelism like the New Testament churches, such success is striking. It is paralleled only by the success of the early church, as testified in the book of Acts, and also in the missionary activities of some of the early missionaries among the pagan tribes on the borders of the empire. The Jewish synagogue was a successful model for evangelism, even if the Jews themselves were not committed to evangelism at all, and its success was especially remarkable in the big cities of the empire. So what was the synagogue? It wasn't a religious institution devoted to worship on Saturday morning, like the modern churches. It wasn't an outlet for catering to the need of religious experience among the masses. That was exactly the reason why the Jews, and later the early Christians, were often accused of atheism. The synagogue had no formal religious observances, no idols, images, or special clothes for the priests, no spectacular rituals and sacrifices and prayers. The only formal ritual was reading of the law of God and expounding on it, like Jesus did in Luke 4, verse 16-30. In other words, it wasn't a temple. It was a community government. J.H. Bavinck, in his great study on the science of missions, points to the fact that by becoming a convert to Judaism in the Roman Empire, a person became part of a comprehensive self-governing judicially and economically oriented civic community. A Jew enjoyed many civic advantages. The Jews who lived in cities had a sort of government of their own and were states within the state. To a certain extent, they even had their own administration of justice, so that to belong to such a community was desirable for many. Since the common people, the unthinking masses, could not think of a religion without idols, they might indeed say that the Jews were atheists. But those who came into a deeper understanding of Jewish worship were in one way or another influenced by it. Indeed, they were influenced. The nearly explosive growth of the Jewish population in the century right before the fall of Jerusalem is an adequate proof. The government of their own and the states within the state J.H. Bavik was talking about were the synagogues. There was no other Jewish institution that could be the focus of that government. It was in the synagogues where the Jews would go for their community decisions, for their justice, for their economic discussions and help, and for organizing their welfare services. The synagogue was meant to be an institution for dominion, a cultural beachhead in the pagan world, based on a different faith and therefore on a different worldview, and therefore on a different cultural foundation, and therefore on different law structure and administration of justice. Under the principle of Deuteronomy 4 verse 5 through 8, it couldn't remain unnoticed by the pagans. It was destined to become a force of attraction, and it did. Pagans flocked to it and either became Jews by circumcision or adopted the Jews' ethical system for their own personal lives, their households, and their social activities. Acts 10 verse 1 through 2. This also meant a different standard for the position of an elder in the church than what we have today in our churches. Obviously, if the church is simply an outlet for religious experience on Sunday morning, then an elder would be expected to be rather similar to a temple priest who is responsible mainly for the religious and ritualistic aspects of the life of the church, which, of course, is the case in our modern churches. Since the synagogue was designed to be a culture separate from the surrounding world, which was to assume the function of a total society for its members, the elders were supposed to be much more than priests in a temple, or simply religious leaders. Just like the elders in the Israel of Moses and David, they were to be the enforcers of civil law and the mainstay of the covenant society. They were judges, economic leaders, teachers in the law, and in productive trades, 
tutors, family and business counselors, as well as community organizers. A typical member of the synagogue did not have the Sabbath day controlled by the elders and its weekdays controlled by another authority or another system of principles or laws. Whether he was a merchant or a hired hand who worked with either Jews or pagans or a government employee, his life was completely seven days a week subject to the civil authority of the synagogue and the law of God as administered by the elders. There he found justice, economic and family counseling, protection against injustice, economic help in hard times, and insurance against the unknowns of life. Of course, it is important to note that his life and property belonged to him, and the elders had no ultimate authority to deprive him of either. But as long as the elders of the synagogue kept the law of God and taught and counseled from the law of God, their counsel was wise and relevant. Leaving the protection of the synagogue brought no formal sanctions on any person. The lack of such protection was a penalty harsh enough. So those who were in stayed and others who weren't converted in order to gain access to the culture which provided such protection. The power of attraction was in the culture created by the law, not in the visible splendor of the Jewish religion, and not in any ceremonies or liturgies. Jews left those to the pagan religions. The Jews were set to conquer the ancient world through cultural conquest, through the many cultures of the synagogues in the big cities. And the early church was modeled after that synagogue. It was a cultural beachhead, not just another temple or another religion. It had its own system of community organization, its own system of laws and administration of justice, and its own rules for helping the poor and educating its members and especially the children. No wonder why that early church had such a tremendous success in the few decades after Pentecost. It simply copied the same cultural principle. In fact, the early church had no other examples to follow but the synagogue. The pressure of the persecution added to the consolidation of the church as a community and an alternative culture. From the earliest years, it set up its own courts. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1 through 6, Paul is speaking as if the Corinthians should have known about the practice of setting their own courts by persons who can judge. He's not giving them a new and unknown before idea. It had its own system of poor relief and economic protection for its members. Contrary to the modern claims about the communism of the early Christians, the economic experiment in Jerusalem actually had all the characteristics of a modern capitalistic enterprise a hybrid of a cooperative, a corporation, and a mutual insurance fund. It had its own system of economic relationships between masters and slaves. It had its own system of family counseling, Titus II. It developed its own schools and a system of education, both academic and vocational. It trained its own rabbis. Very important, it also taught from the law of God on issues which won't be current in the first several centuries, namely civil government and administration of criminal justice, Romans 13, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. Just like the synagogue, the church was assuming the character of a comprehensive society for its members, just like the Jewish synagogue. It was a beachhead for a new civilization, a new culture, the kingdom of God. It wasn't another temple preaching another limited doctrine on personal salvation or religious experience. The view of the church as a comprehensive culture was continued later in the practice and the experience of the Reformation. In places like Switzerland, the Netherlands, Scotland, Hungary, the Reformed churches were more than simply institutions for administering religious observances. In Geneva, Calvin was invited not as a church minister. His preaching on the church was a side job, but as an expert, a technical advisor to the city council in governing the community and building a social order according to the biblical principles. In New England, the elders of the church were the same as the elders of the city, as it was in Old Testament Israel, and therefore, the church was a community where the problems of the community were solved. In his systematic theology, 
R.J. Rushduni quotes Charles Tilley on the function of the elder and the legal powers of the assembly. They determined the sales, purchases, exchanges, and rentals of the commons, the repair of the church, the presbytery, the public buildings, the roads, the bridges. In addition to their syndics, they named their schoolmaster, their herdsman, their sergeant, their hayward, the tithe collectors, the assessors, and the collectors of the tale. Sometimes they fixed the conditions of the wine harvest. In certain circumstances, they even set the rate of pay for day laborers and the prices of certain products. While it can be argued how much of this should be decided by the elders and how much should be left to the individuals and to the operation of the free market, it is clear that the early Reformed Christians did not look at their churches as religious institutions only, but as comprehensive communities with their own culture and law structures. In another place, I have argued that the work of a missionary is nothing less than building covenant communities. It is especially relevant in the cities where the church must establish an example of a new culture, hostile to every other culture in the city, and this can be done only by establishing institutions and practices that parallel those of the pagan world and give a biblical example of how a culture should operate. A church as a temple focused on itself and on its liturgy is a workless enterprise in challenging the culture. Only a synagogue can do the job. Missions in the Big Cities, Part 2, by Bojadar Marinov The biblical model for the family is the nuclear family, a man, his wife, and their dependent children. No matter what situation the family is in, the Bible does not prescribe any additional covenantal authority over the husband. There is no concept of extended family or a clan as a covenantal unit or institution. From the very beginning, the boundaries around the nuclear family are clearly established in Genesis 2, verse 24. A man, which should mean in the context a grown-up adult, should leave the covenantal authority of his parents and start a new covenantal family with his wife. While Isaac lived in the same geographical place with his father Abraham, and Jacob and Esau lived with Isaac, the evidence is that they separated households and made their decisions separately from their fathers. The New Testament also establishes the covenantal boundaries around the nuclear families in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman. Thus, with the married man answering only to Christ as far as the conduct of his family is concerned, barring a violation or transgression that falls within the jurisdiction of the church or the state, any other family allegiance is declared to be outside of the boundaries of the family covenant. The nuclear family is the only type of family as far as the covenantal nature of that institution is concerned. Any relations with the extended family may be beneficial and commendable and economically desirable, but they are not covenantally sanctioned. They are therefore purely voluntary. For example, Naomi had no inherent rights to support from her extended family. All support was a voluntary decision of a relative, not an obligation upon him. In the society of the fallen man, especially in rural settings, the temptation has always been toward replacing the nuclear family with the clan, where one family head controls all the families within its jurisdiction and acts as both civil government and religious priest over them. The model is rejected by the Bible, and it is oriented toward stagnation, not toward dominion. The nuclear family, as Gary North points out, provides maximum harmony. But in the context of the big city, a different temptation is present, one which acts in the opposite direction, the atomization of the society and the individual, and the flight from all human institutions, including those that are biblical, good, and effective, including the family. By a combination of factors, cultural, economic, psychological, the big city seems to discourage its young people from forming families, or when they form them, from having children. A number of Roman authors of the imperial period point to the fact of the dissolution of the family bonds, even among the patrician families, where they used to be the strongest in the antiquity. 
but the dissolution of the family and the lack of interest in the family is not limited to pagan civilizations. To a great extent, such problem existed in the Christendom between AD 1000 and the present, including cities like Paris, London, and the cities in Italy. The problem has been discussed by many Christian authors, both in previous centuries and in modern days, but one main aspect of that problem is especially troubling, that the more individuals rely on a centralized government to supply all their needs, the less willing they are to rely on the biblical family as a covenant institution. And what is important for a missionary, the less they rely on the family, the farther away they are from the kingdom of God. Therefore, the building of the kingdom of God must necessarily include the restoration of the biblical family, which means the nuclear family. Every missionary who went to work in an urban environment has encountered the problem of too many single young men and women, mostly single women, and very few families. The problem is especially persistent in Europe, where the memory of two world wars and the several decades of communism in the East and socialist policies in the West have dealt a serious blow on the family as a covenantal institution. I avoid the label traditional family, for it has no identifiable meaning from a Christian perspective. In many places, and especially in the urban regions of the world, the family is not the basic institution of the culture. This is mainly because in the context of a pagan culture, subjection and service are seen in negative terms, as a drain on one's life, and as a liability which interferes with the self-development of the man or the woman. Rastuni explained how the Christian family is based on the principle of mutual subjection and service. Without Christianity, there is no understanding of the moral value of mutual subjection and service, and therefore, there is no psychological or emotional fuel for young men and women to spend efforts to start and build a family. Man doesn't become free by rejecting the biblical principle of mutual subjection in the family. He only replaces it with totalitarianism and tyranny. The flight from the biblical family in the cities has been the main factor which produced socialism. It is no wonder that in the 20th century the big cities have become a fertile ground for socialist ideas, as well as an endless supply of voters for status political agendas. It has nothing to do with the supposed modernity of the city dwellers, nor with any social progress. The prevalence of socialist ideas in the cities is a direct product of the abandonment of the family as an institution. An atomistic society of lonely men and women will naturally try to embrace another principle of cohesion. If it's not the family, then it must be the state. Mutual love and subjection and service in the family, then, is replaced with subjection and servitude to the state without any love whatsoever. And then, of course, the state in its turn implements policies that additionally atomize the society and separate the individuals from each other until the only social cohesion that would be tolerated by the brainwashed majority is the cohesion of the crowd under the dominance of the political elite. The individuals end up dealing only with the government and all their endeavors, whether in business or in welfare or in intellectual development, while all the other institutions except the government are left without any purpose for existence. The family has no reason for existence in such a society, and therefore the church and the faith in Jesus Christ have no foundation in it. A culture of single men and women dependent on the state is a satanic culture, even when there is no direct worship of demons involved. A missionary who wants to build a church in such settings, then, must make sure he builds families. As I mentioned above, the synagogue model requires at least 10 families for a synagogue to be established. Without families, there is no church, and there is no Christian culture. And in the context of the big city, the problem of lack of families is a major problem. And that might turn out to be the greatest challenge of a culture-changing missionary. It all starts with preaching on the topic of the family. While the family shouldn't occupy 100% of the sermon topics, it must take a much more prominent place than it has now in most missionary sermon plans. And the most important thing is this. These young men must get married. The sooner, the better. A church cannot be built by single individuals, and the culture cannot be challenged nor changed by single individuals. 
It is the nuclear families that build churches and change the culture. Therefore, much of the work a missionary does would be pastoral, help his listeners, and especially the young men develop the courage to overcome the fear of marriage and get married. Of course, not every marriage is healthy and biblical. One must make sure his future spouse is a God-fearing person. But in general, more marriages is better than less marriages. Against the challenges of the city culture and life, marriage may seem like a serious undertaking. A missionary must work hard to help his young men and women face it and conquer it. There is one caveat, though. It is fashionable today in many churches and groups who call for a return to the biblical family to mainly look at the family as a relationship and to emphasize the relationship aspect of it. The family is mainly preached and described in terms of the love between a man and a woman or of the mutual respect and the joys of having children around or of how a father should spend time and show affection and attention, etc., etc. It's all beautiful and cozy and emotionally satisfying and fulfilling. In the context of the broader teaching, that Christianity is all about relationship with Jesus, the family as a relationship is the logical thing to teach. There is a problem with this approach, and the problem is that it is female-oriented, just as the concept of relationship with Jesus is female-oriented. I have talked more about this problem in the church and how the church destroys the Christian family in my article, Relationship versus Purpose, How the Church Destroys the Christian Family. It will suffice to add here, trying to keep the men in the church or to encourage them to have families by preaching relationship is analogous to teaching them literature by forcing them to read all of Jane Austen's novels and discuss them. They will get bored. By their very nature and by creation ordinance, men are created to work and conquer. Relationship is important, but it inevitably will have a secondary role in their thinking. Emphasize the family as mainly relationship and you have lost the majority of them. A wise missionary then will preach the family as it is described in the Bible, as the basic institution for the fulfillment of the dominion mandate to man. Man was created to work and conquer, Genesis 2, verse 15, and the family must be preached as an institution to give him the tools to work and conquer. Without a family, a man is unable to be a successful worker or conquer, Genesis 2, verse 18. He needs a family in order to achieve God's purpose for his life and for the life of those around him. That purpose is not limited to one thing only. The family has limits on its authority, of course, but its prerogatives and functions are many. The main ones are the reproductive and the economic functions, Multiply and take dominion, Genesis 1, verse 26 through 27. The reproductive function is not simply having children, but also teaching and training these children to know God, know His law, and obey His law in their life. Therefore, together with preaching Christian families, a missionary will also teach the parents to take the responsibility for teaching their children, especially in cultures where government education has become the accepted cultural norm. There is no true Christian family where the parents have abdicated the responsibility of training their children to those outside of the family, and especially to unbelievers. The economic function consists of the family's place as a trustee of God's resources. It includes wise management, but it also includes care for the poor and needy, and especially care for the elderly. Just as a family must reclaim the education of its children back from the state and sometimes from the church, so the family also must reclaim the economic initiative and the welfare functions back from the state and sometimes from the church. In the cities where the covenantal family has been under severe attack, the missionary must start preaching the purpose and the function of the family from the very beginning of his mission. A Christian culture cannot be built without Christian families who are restored in their purpose and function under God. Businessmen as teachers. I said above that the modern church has insulated itself into something similar to a pagan temple, an institution limited to providing liturgy and religious experience on Sunday morning. 
I also said that a culture is captured not when Sunday morning is captured, but when Monday morning and every other weekday are captured. Many churches then, after having defined themselves in such limited way, realize that not capturing the weekdays makes them lose the hearts of their members, and that much of the significant and relevant life of their members happens outside of the church during the week. The solution then is not to expand the definition of the church beyond the limited institutional setting and the strictly religious gathering on Sunday morning, but to expand the number of religious activities within this limited definition of church. Instead of capturing the weekdays, many churches are working hard to destroy the weekdays and replace them all with Sundays. This is the underlying religious motive behind the numerous activities which characterize many American churches today. Women's meetings, prayer meetings, youth meetings, church singing nights, three or four more services a week, 4th of July celebrations, and many more. There is always some event that the local church organizes that is designed to make the life of its members more connected to the church. None of these events in themselves, of course, are intrinsically bad or unnecessary. The problem here is rather that they are based on the assumption that the life of a church member outside of these church events is a life in the world and has nothing to do with the church. So the more a church member participates in the church events, the less he is in the world. Eventually, of course, attending church events becomes almost mandatory, and not attending is considered as almost apostasy. And events or activities organized by individual church members, but not by the church session, are not even considered Christian. Many American missionaries abroad have adopted the same approach to church planning. Once a church is formed, the main concern becomes what activities need to be devised and organized so that the church justifies its own existence. The goal is to capture the time the new converts spend outside of the church service. Since most American missionaries have no comprehensive biblical worldview and are unprepared to speak and teach to all areas of life, such activities are designed to be a substitute for solid biblical instruction about the practical life of the new believer during the week, in his family, his job, his business, his political activities, his recreation, his intellectual endeavors, etc. Such approach, while it is taken for granted by the modern church, is in essence dualistic, and therefore not biblical. It assumes the duality of life, church versus secular, and therefore assumes that there are two areas of life regulated by different laws. It denigrates the practical life and work of a believer to be lower class compared to his spiritual or church life, and then it attempts to replace the practical life and work with a set of irrelevant activities believed to be spiritual or evangelistic. But biblically, the time from Monday morning to Saturday night is time for work, Exodus 20 verse 9. And it is exactly work that most church activities are competing against, not the world as a system. Work, of course, includes both the actual process of working, but it also includes rest and recreation, which makes work bearable. The time during the week is supposed to be time for work, not time of activities with the only purpose of making people busy for the church. When a church is trying to take the time of its members during the week, that time is at the expense of work and not at the expense of the world. Church activities can be more worldly than any worldly job out there. Many modern pastors and many modern missionaries do not realize that work is not only not a worldly thing, but it is most spiritual and ethical activity of all activities mentioned in the Bible. Based on the number of verses work is declared to be an ethical and spiritual virtue, it is more spiritual than prayer, church attendance, praise and worship, singing psalms and hymns, helping the poor, offering sacrifices, healing the sick, performing miracles, raising children, having the right relationship with other people, being nice to people, street evangelism, etc., etc. From beginning to end, man's very nature as an image of God is defined much more by the word work than it is defined by liturgy, relationship, or prayer. Man was created and put in the garden, and the first task he was given was to work. 
The law of God, as given to the Hebrews from beginning to end, presupposes a working culture, not a culture of religious observances. Any religious observances were peripheral and temporary in nature. The promised land was described as a place where work will be blessed, not cursed. The commandment for offering the first fruit presupposes they would work the land. Deuteronomy 26, verse 1 through 2. The exiles who went to Babylon had no formal liturgy anymore. God must not have considered it as important as it is for some modern liturgical zealots, but they were commanded to work and serve, the same word in Hebrew. Building houses, planting gardens, and advancing the welfare of Babylon. Jeremiah 29, verse 1 through 7, 40, verse 9. And the warnings against laziness in the book of Proverbs are far too many to list in one short article. In any case, the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 is almost entirely described as a working or businesswoman, and we know that she is portrayed there not only as a moral instruction to the believers today, but also as a symbolic description of the church. Our modern interpretation of the fourth commandment often focuses on the Sabbath rest, and we seldom stop to think that that commandment actually has two parts, work and rest, not work and worship. But Jesus challenged our modern interpretation and explained that the more important part of that commandment is work. In John 5, verse 16 through 17, he replied to the Jews concerning their interpretation of the Sabbath and their accusations that, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. In Matthew 7, verse 15 through 20, Jesus talks about the trees being good or bad according to what they produce. Immediately after that, he says that the religious observances do not secure one's place in the kingdom of heaven verses 21 through 23. And of course, that great parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verse 14 through 30, declares that the refusal to work and produce and increase wealth may cost a man his place in the kingdom. Jesus there specifically calls the servant wicked and lazy, indicating that laziness is a vice. Paul told the Thessalonians to do their own things and work with their own hands, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. And in case they hadn't gotten the message, in his next letter to them, he warned that if anyone is not willing to work, and he is not to eat either. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 10. Seriously, Paul? You'll let a man starve just because he doesn't work? The threat of starvation must be a convincing testimony to the ethical importance of work in Paul's thinking. In general, work is considered in the Bible as more important and of greater spiritual value than religious observances. Therefore, teaching the biblical laws and principles about work, occupation, and business must be considered a priority for a pastor or a missionary higher than teaching about church services, liturgy, or church organization. A missionary who doesn't address work and business in his preaching is delivering to his listeners a dualistic, almost Gnostic gospel, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, a missionary who is making every effort to engage his converts in church activities during the week, thus taking from their time of effective work or recreation, which will make work more bearable, is a missionary who is wasting his time and the money of his sponsors. Much more can be said about the theology of work and the ethical importance of work in the Bible, or about the focus on work that the Reformation created, and thus created the modern world as we know it. R.J. Rush Dooney says that, It is a serious but common error that work is an aspect of the curse. And then, work was central to man's creation and nature. Modern missionaries influenced by the error Rush Dooney is talking about are usually silent about work and business. I have witnessed firsthand how a gypsy community converted to Christianity by charismatic missionaries had no idea that being a Christian involved becoming industrious and economically productive. Modern reform missionaries are not much better. A theology of work is missing completely from the modern reform teaching on the mission field. A century ago, 
the student volunteer movement for foreign missions still included changing the work and business habits of a nation and the legitimate task of a missionary. The testimonies of many of the missionaries at the conference in 1910 included the changing economic and business environment in places like Latin America, Turkey, India, and Eastern Europe as a result of spreading the gospel. Such testimonies today are seldom heard of, and I have been criticized quite a few times by American Reformed missionaries by diluting the gospel with focus on work and business. But work is a spiritual virtue, and a pagan society will naturally tend to despise, hate, denigrate, and reject work. No wonder for the fallen man work is a curse, and the less time is spent in work, the happier the fallen man feels. Conversely, a Christian society will put a heavy emphasis on work and business and on redeeming the time to use it in serving one's fellow beings. Work has two main purposes in the Bible. First, it is increasing the value of one's capital. The parables of the talents and the minas are very clear about that. The examples of Abraham and Jacob are also very clear. The Old Testament expected of the faithful Israelites to build and plant and expand the land. This first function of work includes production, management, investment, organization of production and labor, education and training, marketing, trade, and many others. Second, it is solving problems. In a regular day, where there are no accidents or unfortunate circumstances, a man works to increase his capital. But in a world that is not entirely under man's control, there are contingencies which man must anticipate and deal with to prevent his capital from shrinking. This second function of work may include insurance, contingency planning, protection of assets, maintenance and safety, damage control, rescue of human and non-human capital from dangerous situations, etc. This second function of work is so important that Jesus said it trumps the Sabbath regulations. Matthew 12, verse 11, and Luke 14, verse 5, show that safety, rescue, damage control, and protection of assets were permitted on a Sabbath day. Luke 13, verse 15, shows that maintenance was permitted on a Sabbath day. But the response to everything here would be, a missionary is not necessarily supposed to organize workers, do business, invest money, give example of productive work, or prudent management of risk and opportunities. True, some missionaries, the Apostle Paul being the prime example, had their own business and not only supported their own ministries, but also gave an example for others to follow. Others, on the other hand, were supported by private individuals, like Jesus himself, for example, Luke 8, verse 2 through 3, or by the churches, like Peter, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3 through 7. If work as increasing capital and work as protecting assets is such important spiritual virtue according to the gospel, how is a missionary to teach his listeners about it if he himself has the right to refrain from working? 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6, and therefore may not have the sufficient experience about work, capital, investments, etc. The problem is even more acute in the big cities given the fact that from very early in history, the cities have attracted not only the most innovating and industrious members of the society, but also the most corrupt and the lazy. Sodom and Gomorrah were extreme examples, but they were certainly not exceptions. Athens, Rome, and Alexandria had their share of the population which was committed to living without working. Panem et Circenses was a successful policy of control exactly because the population of Rome expected bread and circuses. It was corrupt and lazy, and it viewed physical labor as something only the slaves do. The same policy, represented today by the modern policies of government welfare, works mainly in the cities where there is a separate class of dependents on the government who have lost their ability and desire to ever be independent and productive. Even among those who have work and are better off, the welfare mentality runs strong. In fact, welfare recipients can be found in all strata of society, from the poor to bank owners and CEOs. So what's a missionary to do in the big city? The solution is in returning to what I said above about the synagogue model for the church. 
A missionary must realize and accept the fact that the church is not limited to the institutional organization and its gatherings, but it is also an organism, and its members are lawful representatives of the church and their vocations. The missionary must also recognize that teaching work ethic, stewardship, and problem-solving is an important part of the gospel, and therefore, the church members must be encouraged to learn and practice those important gospel virtues. Of course, every member of the church must be a hard-working member in his area of vocation and expertise. But the businessman, the entrepreneur, the innovator, is in a special position to learn, practice, and teach those skills. The Christian missionary has a special obligation to that specific type of person and can reap results that can help his church and his work grow beyond the results of many modern missionaries. It is often assumed that business and entrepreneurship is about money and profit and getting rich. It is true that this is part of motivation of a businessman, just as a part of the motivation of an employee's getting the paycheck at the end of the week. In fact, very often the paycheck is a much greater motivation for an employee than is profit for a businessman. But to declare the financial result the essence of business is the same as to accuse parents who have decided to have many children that their only motivation is to have someone take care of them when they retire. Of course, parents expect their children to take care of them, but there is much more to parenting than that. In the same way, there is much more to business than simply profit and getting rich. The essence of entrepreneurship is stewardship of resources, and these resources include raw materials, time, and notice carefully, labor. In the context of the modern city, in a constantly growing population and an economy getting more and more complex, organization of labor becomes one of the main tasks of business. What is seldom realized by modern critics of capitalism, both Christian and socialist, is that industrial capitalism wins not because it is profit-oriented, but because it is superior to the other social systems in its organization of work. And since work is the highest spiritual virtue in the task of dominion, modern industrial capitalism will always take dominion, criticisms and predictions to the contrary notwithstanding. Making work more effective is a biblical virtue, and businessmen and entrepreneurs risking their own capital and employing their own resources and skills are the people who are taking up the task of making work more effective. As the gospel grows, capitalism will grow for it is a system that most effectively puts to practice the dominion mandate, increase and multiply, and take dominion over the earth. A businessman of the church, therefore, is just as important for spreading the gospel as is the pastor or the evangelist, or any other church occupation one can think of. He is a steward of resources, and especially of work, and work is a spiritual virtue. A missionary, therefore, must start his preaching with a heavy emphasis on work ethic and the spiritual value of entrepreneurship. Of all points in his preaching, this one is the most probable to meet opposition, whether vocal or silent. In many nations, the myth of our people is a hard-working people has been nurtured by populist and socialist politicians and by the self-righteous attitude of pagan populations. The truth is, a nation that needs the gospel is also a nation that lacks work ethic, for it is only the gospel that produces work ethic. Especially in the cities, the prevailing attitude is socialist, anti-work ethic, and anti-business. Stewardship is a foreign word for the majority of the city dwellers around the world. Therefore, a missionary must start with preaching the work ethic of the Bible and by defending business and entrepreneurship from a biblical perspective. This would mean, in the first place, preaching and teaching the work ethic of the Bible, starting from the dominion mandate and explaining the meaning of that mandate and its place in the gospel. The regular temptation for a missionary, even when that missionary is truly reformed in his theology, is to focus on the pietistic part of the gospel emphasizing personal salvation and faith without obedience. 
but the gospel is about restoring man in his original place in the covenant and enabling him to fulfill the dominion mandate. Brought to bear on the individual life of a man, this means productive work and problem solving. A missionary in his sermons and messages must attack laziness, dependence on handouts and welfare and entitlement mentality as much as he attacks sexual immorality or any other kind of immorality. Encouraging work, education, and training in productive skills, seeking productive employment, and the spiritual value of expanding one's dominion over the earth is among the first things a missionary must preach to his listeners. Conversion to Christ, who is working as his father is working, means conversion to a new understanding of the importance of work and therefore new practical attitude to work. Then a missionary must preach about business and the importance and the necessity for the covenant community to value and support those in it who have devoted their life to the risk and responsibilities of entrepreneurship. Modern churches look at the entrepreneurs as simply milking cows, supplying the needs of the church. Pastors and missionaries often care only about the financial result of a successful business in the form of tithes and offerings to the church, of course. But if work is an important spiritual virtue, then businessmen in the church must be encouraged to use their skills to teach others the virtue of work and industry. According to an old Jewish saying, a father who doesn't teach his son Torah and a trade makes him a thief. Modern churches, of course, teach their members neither Torah nor a trade. But a missionary who understands that the church is larger than the institutional gathering on Sunday morning and also understands that the dominion mandate has never been repealed by God, will make sure that his listeners are encouraged to enter the field of business, and those who do and are successful will teach others to be responsible stewards as well. Spiritual virtues can be twisted to become vices. Yes, even prayer can become an idol and ungodly exercise. Matthew 6, verse 5-7 Work, then, can be twisted to serve the purpose of Satan. That's why a missionary also needs to teach the law of God concerning work and business. This is an area largely left grave for most pastors and Christians. Biblical economics is not a common topic in the churches, and neither is business. Of course, it all follows from the larger rejection of the law of God as our standard for righteous living today. Indeed, a pastor has no place to go but to the law of God if he wants to draw the biblical principles for work and business. But, in the general atmosphere of antinomianism in the churches, such a move is seldom even contemplated. In the United States, the consequences of such omissions are not so obvious. The reason is, there is a strong legacy of an earlier theonomic influence which is still very strong in America. Christian America in the past did look at work and business as areas under the jurisdiction of the gospel, and the Puritan preachers of the past did preach on economic and business topics. Entrepreneurship was a godly thing to do, and the laws for righteous business were found in the Bible. This strong legacy remains and therefore entrepreneurship is still strong in America. Despite the theological and spiritual blindness of our modern pastors and theologians and seminary professors, the dualism is very strong in the American churches, but the Puritan legacy is even stronger. American pastors and preachers are living off the very legacy they are opposing, and yet, so rich it is, it continues to defy their theological efforts to destroy it and continues to work. But a missionary in a foreign land doesn't have the luxury of that same Puritan legacy. If he opposes preaching work as a spiritual virtue, or if he even omits it, there is no moderating influence in the culture to supply the spirit and the practice of work and business. Outside of the U.S., most nations are in the grip of a demonic socialist ideology and psychology that continues to consider work a curse and a leisure a blessing. Not addressing this ideology and psychology will mean that a missionary has accepted it as a normative, and thus rejected the most important spiritual virtue of the gospel. Therefore, he must preach it, teach it and encourage it, and encourage the businessmen and the entrepreneurs 
and his congregations to join him and help him in transforming the work ethic of his listeners. In short, where the missionary doesn't have a Puritan legacy to help him, he must create it. Conclusion The cities are the future of mankind. Knowing how to do missions in the cities will be vital to the mission endeavor in the next generations. History moves from rural to urban, from the countryside to the cities, from small communities to big conglomerates. From the garden to the city is a biblical pattern. We better learn to do missions in the cities and build a Christian culture in the context of the big cities. In the modern context, the missionary to the big cities has three immediate problems to worry about. Church, families, work. The church must be built by restoring the old model of the synagogue. It was built and tested in the cities of the Roman Empire by the Jewish diaspora and then taken and perfected by the Christian diaspora. It helped the Christian become the most influential and successful cultural factor and transform the ancient world. Not the limited institutional model of the temple, but the cultural beachhead model of the synagogue is what will build and sustain the new Christian civilization in the context of our modern civilization. No culture can be built without families. The modern city has destroyed the old model of the extended family, which was not biblical anyway, but it has also discouraged the nuclear family, which is the biblical model. A missionary can't continue his work in a city unless he encourages his young men to overcome their fear of having family and taking responsibility for a wife and children. This must happen by preaching and teaching on the purpose of the family in the plan of God, and especially the purpose of the family in the dominion mandate. The modern city church in many big cities around the world is a church of single men and women. Until this pattern changes, churches will come and go, and the cities will remain unevangelized. A third Puritan legacy of work must be built. This means restoring the biblical theology of work and the biblical work ethic. This will mean expanding the definition of the church to include the effort of all its members, and especially of those who are gifted and experienced in organizing work, businessmen, and entrepreneurs. Without restoring work as a virtue and as a practical way of life under the law of God, modern churches will remain irrelevant and short-lived. The goal must be to build the same culture of work as the Puritans built in America, which today survives even the attempts of pastors and theologians to destroy it. A modern Christian synagogue built of nuclear families where the men work and engage in righteous, profitable business. This is the beginning of a successful reform mission in any big city in the world today. The Scottish Presbyterians, the English Puritans, the Dutch Reformed, the Swiss Protestants, they all put it in practice, and within a generation, their nations became reformed. It will work today, too. The complexity of social relationships in the big city can be conquered only when a new culture is built, and that new culture is established upon these simple foundation pillars. It is that simple. This audio version of Mission in the Big Cities Part 1 and 2 has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Luke Bell. Please visit www.christendomrestored.com to read this article and many more.